Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Colin Clark about Iran's interests in Afghanistan. Then, John, Natasha, and I talk about what the experience in Afghanistan tells us about great power competition and cooperation in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Colin Clark is a senior research fellow and the director of policy and research at the Sufan Center. He taught at Carnegie Mellon and worked at the Rand Corporation for 10 years. Colin, welcome to Babel. Thanks for having me. You've looked at Afghanistan and you've looked at, at Iran for a long time. What's at stake for Iran in Afghanistan right now? Other countries and other regional powers are going to fill that void. Chief atop that list is Iran looking to extend influence into Afghanistan. This is a, a regime that's worked with the Taliban in the past, despite the ideological differences. And I think that bond between Iran and the Taliban may actually be strengthened by the common enemy that is Islamic State Khorasan. Iran suffered a, a number of IS attacks itself. And I think there's great concern that given Islamic State's sectarian agenda, uh, more can be on the way, particularly if that's a group that grows and spreads throughout Afghanistan, as some expect. You've said that there's an Iran relationship with al-Qaeda. There's certainly an Iran relationship with the Taliban. There's an Iran relationship with the Islamic State Khorasan. Can you describe those relationships? Because as you suggest, it's not intuitive that Iran would have relationships with any group of Sunni extremists. You're right. I think that's one of the areas as analysts we've been forced to think outside of the box. For too long, there was this knee-jerk group think that Sunni and Shia under no circumstances could ever work together. A lot of this thinking was predominant during the height of AQI, which was under Zarqawi waging this really sectarian conflict in the region. Layered on top of that, the kind of ongoing Cold War between the Saudis and the Iranians and how countries in the region kind of fall into place uh, behind those respective uh, regional powers. The Iran-Al-Qaeda relationship is extremely complicated. I wrote a really lengthy piece in Lawfare with Asfan Yarmir, where we teased some of that out. In a nutshell, the way that Asfan Yar and I described the relationship was, I guess, begrudging in some ways with Iran hosting Al-Qaeda leaders, but also keeping a very close eye on those leaders perhaps not close enough, as we learned with the assassination of Abu Muhammad al-Masri, allegedly by the Israelis, and Saif al-Adil is believed to be in Iran as well, waiting in the wings, depending on what happens with al-Qaeda's current leader, Ayman al-Zawahiri. But I think that's a marriage of convenience. You described it as a sophisticated hedging strategy. It is. I do think it is a sophisticated hedging strategy. It gives them a little bit of leverage. It gives them some chips to play, especially with Afghanistan in flux, the Taliban taking over back in the region, al-Qaeda once again having that umbrella of Taliban protection. And it's not assumed, at least by me, that AQ is immediately going to set its sights on the West. I think certainly the Taliban has an interest in making sure that al-Qaeda doesn't begin attacking the West again, because if so it's going to be a really complicated task for the Taliban to maintain 
control of Afghanistan, which I think it will struggle with to begin with. In terms of Iran and the Taliban, the history is well documented with some of the enmity and the animosity there, going back to Iranian diplomats being slaughtered in Afghanistan. But again, Iran has provided material support and assistance to the Taliban at various stages of this conflict. And so there is a relationship there. The Iranians can be quite pragmatic, and so can the Taliban. But I still see this as a pretty draconian organization ruling the country. People have pointed out, well, it's not ISIS. And I said, if you're moderate compared to ISIS, you're still pretty extreme. This Islamic State Khorasan, which most people haven't heard of until the last month, how much of a threat do you think it is for the Iranians? How much of a threat is it to Iranian interests? And what tools do the Iranians have to limit their influence? I want to be measured in the level of threat that I think ISK can pose. Even within Afghanistan, there's no risk that ISK is going to usurp the Taliban or pose any real threat to its leadership. But I do think it can play a spoiler role. And I do think that given its presence in uh, Nangarhar and Kunar provinces, its success in recruiting among Salafis in those provinces, and its access to this kind of witches brew of jihadi groups along the AFPAC border, I do think that it's got some potential staying power. We've seen its capabilities and its reach into Kabul itself and spectacular attacks that this group has launched. I think the chief threat to Iran is because this group has pursued such a sectarian agenda, mainly attacking Shia Hazara in Afghanistan, but that's the way that Islamic State franchises across the board look to generate momentum and recruits. They want to go after Shia almost above anyone else. And so I think Iran poses a pretty attractive target to IS, not only Iranian soil, but Iranian interests in Afghanistan, particularly as Iran ramps up its presence, as I expect, and we see a bigger footprint that provides also more targets for IS. That same thing is true of other countries as well. There's a lot of talk about Chinese influence in Afghanistan, and people assume that it's just going to be clear sailing. But I think even a more significant presence by China in the region is going to come with some strings attached. The U.S. security umbrella is not there. China is not going to just have unfettered access to minerals like people have been describing. There's going to be some security implications that come with a larger footprint, even if that's uh, mostly an economic footprint. Afghanistan had emerged as a, a large trading partner for Iran, partly because foreign aid to Afghanistan represented more than 40% of the Afghan GDP, and the Iranians were selling fuel, they were selling all kinds of things across the border. What happens to the economic ties between Iran and Afghanistan when Afghanistan gets much more isolated from the global economy? That's at the, the forefront of thinking of a lot of folks that I've spoken to recently, they bring up the economy and some of those ties. And if there are struggles, do we see an increase in illicit economic activity, including cross-border smuggling and smuggling of humans and smuggling of drugs and smuggling of illicit goods smuggled back and forth across the border? I do think the refugee issue is going to be a big deal as Afghans figure out whether or not they want to stay under Taliban rule. If not, are there human smuggling networks along the border that are reactivated? How does that pad the pockets of some economic power brokers that operate over in Western Afghanistan? And moreover, do we see any kind of involvement by IRGC or others tasked with monitoring that border? Uh, we know there's been allegations of 
corruption before? Uh, and then how does the IRGC deal with that? Especially if you start seeing security incidents along that border, it's even more of an impetus to shut down some of the trade on the back and forth. Um, so I think it's a significant concern. And one of the consequences of the previous flood of Afghans into Iran in the 80s and 90s is the Iranians created these Afghan brigades, the Liba al-Fatimiyun, who have gone off and fought in other parts of the Middle East on behalf of Iranians under Iranian leadership. Do you think there's a likelihood that Iran is going to try to inject some of these Afghan origin fighters under Iranian command back into Afghanistan as there's a battle for control of the state? It seems totally plausible, depending on what the security situation looks like. There's been some Iranian government officials, it might have even been Zarif, that have openly mused about this, of what they were going to do with the Luo Fatimiyun brigades. I wrote an article in the CTC Sentinel back in 2017 with Philip Smith, where we talked about this. There's this Iranian foreign fighter network. And once Syria winds down, these guys are not going to go home and become bakers and mechanics and school teachers. This is now a new tool for Iran to use in the region, much in the way it's wielded the cudgel of Hezbollah, Iraqi Shia militia, now the Houthis, although that's a, a bit more of a complicated relationship. This is just another option for Iran to conduct its foreign and security policy, or in the case where it feels really threatened by what's happening in Afghanistan, to have some kind of a kinetic solution that still keeps Iran itself at arm's length, working through proxies. This is a trend, I think, that is increasing. We're seeing this with what the Turks are doing in Libya. There's a lot more uh, of this that seems to be a, just a normal part now of almost any conflict across the region. You've talked about the ways the Iranians have developed the whole series of interests in Afghanistan, of people they can influence in Afghanistan. The other place they've done that over the last several decades has been in Iraq. How would you compare and contrast the way the Iranians have sought to build clients and instruments of influence in Afghanistan versus what we've seen them doing in Iraq? To me, Iraq is more organic. There's more of an Iraqi presence and a history and a lineage of some of these Iran-backed Shia groups there. The Afghan model is a little bit different, and it's interesting to me in, in many ways, because the Afghans that are under Iranian tutelage at the moment are largely trained and cutting their teeth and gaining battle experience in Syria. But to be back inserted into Afghanistan, if you think about the way the U.S. has attempted to train some counterterrorism forces, it's, well, let's take them out of Syria, bring them to Jordan, train them up, and then send them back. It's players from the home team, but playing an away game, to use a baseball analogy, because they've been in a different theater against different adversaries, operating alongside Russian air power. There's so many more different dynamics in Syria. And then when you look at the Iraqi case, for comparison, the capabilities are also a lot higher with some of these groups like KH. Um, Hezbollah. Yeah, sorry for slipping into acronym speak. But I think that those groups are a lot more uh, developed than what we would see in Afghanistan. But again, Iran is patient. They've done this successfully with Lebanese Hezbollah, with other groups. And I think we've seen the force multiplier that tacit knowledge transfer can be when you have 
IRGC, Quds Force, hands-on trainers, and the provision of fairly sophisticated technology and weaponry, that can get you a lot in the Middle East. We talk a lot about state actors, and this was one of these interesting areas of convergence between great power competition and counterterrorism. I think the Iranians are at the center of that. This is a state that has long been a state sponsor of terrorism, and it's now, as part of its foreign policy, looked to grow many Hezbollahs across the region. Why have they done it? Frankly, in my mind, because it's been effective. You've written a lot about how much the Iranians benefited from the U.S. security presence in Afghanistan. It, it helped cut down on drug smuggling. It helped cut down on some of these very empty Shia groups that circulate in Afghanistan. What do you see as the possibility of the U.S. and Iran aligning along common goals in Afghanistan, as indeed they did shortly after the fall of the Taliban? Making predictions about the Middle East is fraught, right? What did Yogi Berra say? I don't like to make predictions, especially about the future. And then I'd tag on, and especially about the Middle East on top of that. It's one of those situations where geopolitics makes for strange bedfellows. And you're right, they did coordinate early on in this conflict, and by some accounts, quite effectively. So uh, that's something we could see again. I often wonder, without a U.S. security umbrella there, does it make the United States more likely to cooperate because the U.S. itself is having little leverage? You know, the fact of the matter is, Washington is going to have to rely on, to some degree, powers in the region that fill this vacuum for intelligence because Al-Qaeda, IS, these aren't just U.S. problems, especially when you throw in Uyghurs and Chechens and Uzbeks and and all these other folks into the mix. Moscow is concerned about uh, blowback. Beijing is concerned about blowback. Tehran is concerned about blowback. India and Pakistan see everything through their own zero-sum lens. There's going to have to be, I think, greater communication between the U.S. and countries that we would consider adversaries. Is that something that can be viewed in isolation? We're at loggerheads in many other areas. Is this an area where we can uh, expect some kind of partnership? Again, I've been skeptical in the past, particularly on the U.S.-Russian front, of anything of value we would get from the Russians. But there have been instances. It's just not something I would base my entire strategy around. Let me ask the flip side of that question. What do you think the danger is of the U.S. and Iran falling into gray zone competition in Afghanistan? That there are some issues where Iran seeks to advance its own interests by using Afghanistan as a platform in a way that threatens American interests. There, it threatens to derail other areas where we do need to make progress and where the stakes are higher. I've spent the last 20 years studying terrorism and counterterrorism. I don't find terrorism to be an existential threat. I think in many ways, we've overreacted to the threat of terrorism. That said, it's something to take seriously. And I think gray zone competition between the US and Iran and Afghanistan, it could lead to escalation. And if that escalation derails more important objectives, like reaching some kind of accord on the nuclear issue, that's really problematic. We've been able to kind of look at these issues in isolation so far, but does that continue? I think a lot depends on what form that gray zone competition takes and if the U.S. considers it beyond the pale of what other nations would normally do. Is there something you think the United States should do 
try to ensure that the US and Iran can use Afghanistan as a platform for greater understanding and cooperation rather than a platform for veiled competition. The US could very well take initiative. We've been there for 20 years. Even though we're now leaving, we've got a decent understanding of the players, of their objectives. It could be a bit of an olive branch to the Iranians to say, look, we're leaving, which again is partly what the Iranians wanted, right? And here we can help you understand the lay of the land, particularly what we think is going to change in our own absence, because surely we've done an analysis of how things change on the ground without a U.S. presence there. Some of those changes may be negative for Iran. And so helping to assuage Iranian concerns, you know, there's a crack right there in the door that opens for maybe further conversations. I've seen other people that are really pessimistic about anything that the U.S. could offer the Iranians or that the Iranians would be willing to reciprocate with because of the recent change in leadership. So I think there's an opportunity How likely is it to be fruitful? It's hard to say. A lot to think about. Colin Clark, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thanks very much for having me. Next up, John, Natasha, and I speak about what the experience in Afghanistan tells us about great power competition and cooperation in the Middle East. What conclusions do you think Iran will draw from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? I think Iran's strategy when it comes to Afghanistan is just fascinating and has been for several years, but particularly since the UN has been engaged with talks with the Taliban. And essentially, they're just really hedging their bets with multiple actors, various Taliban factions, with the Hazara groups in the north, and really playing all sides, even the Afghan government before it collapsed to the extent that heads of the Taliban were actually in Tehran for consultations to the point where Secretary of State Mike Pompeo actually told the Taliban at one point to stop engaging with Iran. So it's really interesting to see sort of the strategy, the very complex and nuanced strategy that they're playing while simultaneously having, you know, Fatimayun fighters allegedly or reportedly in Afghanistan fighting other Taliban factions. I think that in light of the U.S. withdrawal, they will continue to see Afghanistan as an opportunity perhaps rather than a threat, as much as possible. And the fact that Qasem Soleimani, the general who was assassinated by the United States, his replacement, Ghani, who was his deputy for more than a decade, was actually previously responsible for Iran's engagement with Afghanistan. So it will be interesting to see how he engages with the future of Afghanistan, whichever shape that might take. But in terms of conclusions to draw, I think that the Iranians have already thought about asymmetrical tools they have, and it will reinforce the idea that there are ways to weaken the United States that don't involve going head-to-head with U.S. forces. The limits to American military capability, as well as the strengths of American military capability. And I'm sure the Iranians are going to be thinking about how do you draw the Americans, if you want to have a confrontation, how do you create a confrontation where the Americans can't really respond. The Americans have lots of capabilities with drones, with surveillance. We know all those things. But still, in many ways, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan reinforced to the Iranians that there are ways to beat the United States. And one of the premises of that is you don't directly confront the United States in ways it wants to be confronted. And one way that 
the Iranians have been particularly successful with that is proxy militias throughout the Middle East. And I could certainly see, I mean, the Fatimiyun Brigade that Iran supports is primarily composed of Afghan Hazara that have been refugees in Iran. And one would assume that there will be another flood of refugees to Iran that are quite desperate, and many of them will be from the Hazara sect. So I think building upon those forces and what they will do with them and how they will deploy them should also be, I think, of significant concern for the United States and regional stability in the future. What conclusions do you think Russia and China will draw about U.S. attitudes toward the Middle East as a consequence of the U.S. withdrawal? I think they always thought the U.S. wasn't in it for the long haul. I think they'll look for ways to increase the costs to the United States of staying committed the way the U.S. has been committed. But in many ways, China doesn't want the U.S. to withdraw from the Middle East. China wants the U.S. to stay mired in the Middle East as a way to divert American attention from China. So I think China is going to try to find ways to regulate the American presence in the Middle East. In many ways, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan creates a problem for China, much as China wants to exploit opportunities. I mean, I think it'll be interesting in the near term to see how Russia and China capitalize on this withdrawal from the lens of just sheer propaganda, which China and particularly Russia are quite good at, and exaggerating the withdrawal of U.S. hegemony or presence from the world, which you already see quite a few leaders in Russia and China alluding to. But beyond that, more strategically, I think it'll be interesting to see how Russia and China's opportunity-driven model will look in Afghanistan in the future. They've certainly already seemed to accept the Taliban presence and governance in the area. But for the foreseeable future, I mean, there could be threats there as well. And certainly, I think China will be looking for opportunities very cautiously, similarly to the way it does in unstable countries in the Middle East, like Syria and Lebanon, for the foreseeable future. But certainly the fact that there are ample lithium deposits there, rare earth minerals, I think China will look for ways to exploit that in the future. As China looks to engage more deeply across all of Asia, what do you think they learned from the 20 years the U.S. was in Afghanistan that will shape what they are willing to do in the rest of the Middle East? They've never been big on state building, on nation building. And I think they'll be even more averse to nation building. The challenge is, in many ways, the U.S. was trying to do some of what China does. You make deals with warlords and you try to take a more transactional approach to getting things done. But ultimately, the United States found that you don't really change things. You're just in a difficult transactional relationship. I think China is going to look for ways not to replicate the American experience. But as Natasha points out, there are any number of things they're going to want from Afghanistan commercially. How do they avoid getting sucked in, providing security, engaging with partners, if you just want to have a purely transactional relationship? And China does have a certain degree of experience with this throughout Africa. So dealing in areas that are somewhat insecure, that are somewhat unstable, and really looking at the costs and benefits of doing so and approaching this, but primarily from a transactional perspective, as John points out. And I think that the U.S. withdrawal really actually confirms China's strategy of not engaging in this kind of pronounced nation-building approach that lasts decades. 
and actually speaks to the longer term benefits, you might say, of this transactional approach. What that does for the people of Afghanistan, what that does for Afghan governance, I think we'll see much more negative consequences stemming from that. But certainly the Taliban is going to need to buttress its economy in some way. And you can see China filling the gap as well as Iran. Shifting gears a bit, though, we focus a lot on great power competition when looking at the Middle East. How could the U.S. withdrawal lead to great power cooperation? It certainly feels to me that the United States and China and Russia share a lot of interests. I mean, none of them want ISIS-K to have a platform. There are issues of drug smuggling and other things, which all the countries are united about. I think that there are other kinds of terrorist groups that are a threat to everybody because both the Russians and the Chinese feel they have domestic Islamist terrorist groups who could certainly find a platform in Afghanistan. So I think that there are many ways in which the US, China, Russia, and even Iran share interests in the future of Afghanistan. And cooperating on those issues, cooperating on pushing the Taliban to meet American needs on those issues is also a way to persuade the Iranians and the Chinese that partnership as the world tries to nudge Afghanistan in a positive direction is in common interest. And when you have cooperation on those kinds of things, you can expand it to other areas. On the flip side of that, you could see the advantages for Russia and China of ensuring that groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda have their arch enemy continue to be the West and the U.S. in particular. And so ensuring a good relationship with the Taliban or whichever faction of the Taliban that they border with can ensure that that hatred or that animosity continues to be directed to the U.S. is also of benefit to them and could even potentially draw the United States back in and ensure that they're not therefore confronting China or Russia in the future. On the side of Iran as a country that has a lot of sanctions tied to it, this is yet another country that it could potentially trade with, that could have economic relationship with, that could even have a military relationship with in the future. So I think that there are potentially a lot of threats when it comes to great power competition. I would hope it would be more of a cooperative relationship, but just judging by the intentions of Russia and China in recent years, I would also consider the threats that are there as well. But I do think they all have a serious terrorist threat. I mean, between Uyghur groups that embrace violence, Chechen groups that embrace violence, Sunni extremist groups that embrace violence against Shia, I think you certainly have at least the beginnings of an agreement that Afghanistan can't be a base where these people can meet, network, train, fund, do all those kinds of things against all these countries. If you're in opposition-controlled areas of Syria, does the manner or timing of the U.S. withdrawal tell you anything you didn't already know? I mean, it, certainly speaking to people in Syria over the past few days, they point to Afghanistan as an example or proof that the U.S. doesn't care about this part of the world. And I think that that should be of great concern to the Biden administration, which started its campaign saying America is back because that certainly doesn't appear to be the case from the perspective of the Middle East. I should note that the Biden administration has confirmed that it will stay in the Northeast Syria in particular, and that it will continue to have robust ties in Iraq. But certainly, I think that this shows an ongoing 
trajectory of the United States out of these quagmires as it sees it and towards larger threats that it sees in the South China Sea and with China and with great powers elsewhere. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.